And we're not through this because the reality is this. We've got Bill C-11 that is really an inch away from becoming a, a law. These vaccine mandates are only suspended. And now in Ontario, you got Dr. Moore talking about the fact that, hey, masks are still an option. And I read yesterday, University of Waterloo now made it mandatory for all students to wear a mask in any academic setting of any kind, which means lectures, exams, libraries, indoors. Mm-hmm. So we're not through this. We are not through this. I mean, the opposition to to freedom right now still has a vote and they very much want to be able to continue to find a way to fulfill their original agenda. When this all started, we thought the lawyers were going to actually do their thing and, and stop this right in its tracks. And, mm-hmm. and anyone did. And then when the vaccines came out, we thought the doctors would actually step up and do something. And they didn't, except for a small few. And then it took the truckers to get the attention of the government. And what, what was the result? The government came down with a bazooka. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Tom Morazzo, who is with us, and uh, Tom, it's great to have you on our program again. Thank you for having me back. You know, Tom, I tell you, what an amazing couple of weeks has been going on in Ottawa. You have been there, sitting in the front rows, and even gave testimony yourself just last week. I'm just wondering if you could share with our audience what your impressions are of what's happening there right now with the commission. Well, I think what's important for everybody to first and foremost understand is that I do honestly believe that the commission lawyers and the commissioner himself, Justice Rouleau, are doing an an incredibly professional, top-notch job. I think it was very early from the beginning of probably on the second week, maybe the, the half of the second week, we realized that the commission lawyers are actually looking for the truth. And they've been very effective. And and you can tell in the way that they ask questions from what was originally the way they were posing questions in the early days of the commission. And -hmm. I think the turning point was right after, I believe his rank is Inspector Pat Morris from the OPP. And right after that seemed to be a real turning point for the way the commission lawyers were changing or asking their their questions. So I have to say, you know, as a unsophisticated non-lawyer, mm. I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the way the commission lawyers are conducting themselves, asking the questions. And I, I know what my prep was like. I know what Chris Barber's prep was like, as well as Tamara's before the day that they actually got onto the stand. And it was extremely well done. So from my perspective in many of the others that I've spoken to, there's a lot of discussion out there on social media about this being a non-event and that Justice Rouleau is just a um, liberal plant. And But but none of us believe that's actually the case. None of us believe. We, we have an extreme amount of confidence in the commission lawyers as well as Justice Rouleau to do the job that he was sent to Ottawa to do as well as the other lawyers. So from that perspective, we're, we're incredibly encouraged. That's exciting. In fact, I've noticed one of the questions that is being asked of those who were participating in the convoy was how has, for example, just an open-ended question of how have the COVID pandemic affected you? Like there, like there was just this, okay, I sensed with that question was the idea, well, okay, why did the people come to Ottawa? And it's like, yes, that's a great question. Yeah, and that's such an interesting thing, too, because, you know, if you look in the social media world, there is a very, very strong divide. Mm-hmm. But I think it is actually getting less and less and less. And I think a lot of Canadians now are starting to say, hey, maybe there is something to all of this that that other people may have noticed earlier than I did. I'm personally seeing sort of a decline. I don't know, maybe it's just the number of people that I block continuously on Twitter (laughs) actually attack me. So maybe I've created my own uh, superficial echo chamber of of supporters. I don't know. But the the overwhelming thing is I started on my Facebook page about a week ago. I I, middle of the night, I got up out of bed. It was about 1am and I just started typing this Facebook post. Mm. And it was several paragraphs long, but each of my paragraphs 
ended with this line that just said, because I asked questions. You know, the interesting thing is it was a little bit cathartic for me because I got to go through why were all the reasons I, I feel the way that I do. And I, and I was actually going to do it for one of the monologues that I like to do on my YouTube channel, but I decided instead to give p- other people on my Facebook page an opportunity to write their own paragraph. Mm. And so I'm kind of looking at this as a collective post on Facebook. And I think what I'd like to do sometime later in the future is to take some of the best ones and do the monologue. But from some of those stories that were were added to my original post. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and, and so you're seeing the heartfelt stories on my Facebook page about that particular post of what people experienced during the early days of the pandemic and, and especially right after the vaccine mandates came out. It further sort of solidifies all of our reasons, what we were feeling in those days of the vaccine mandates and other COVID mandates. And, you know, I, I wish I could say that the stories were positive, but they're not. They're they're horror stories. They're absolutely full, filled yeah, with and, fear and, and sadness. And I feel that as we have come along, as it were, that, that now that the mandates are over, there is this sense that it, it's almost like you, you kind of have to put yourself back in time to remember how it was because we we are so uh i guess in many ways we're primed to like let's put the past behind us and let's uh you know go to the positive future which is great but the problem is is that if we don't really get a handle on what we've experienced and the amount of pain we've all suffered as a result of this experience we're we're, we're bound to end up repeating it again and th- and that's that's where i think it's extremely important for us to pay attention to what's going on at the commission so that you know we can really comprehend and what you're doing now with with this post that you just mentioned to to just say hey listen we do not want to go back there it's difficult to articulate how we all felt for a certain proportion of the population that were perfectly happy that we were being ostracized and removed from society very very gradually the people that didn't see what we saw are very oftentimes quite offended when you draw these comparisons between what happened in Nazi Germany in the early 1930s, because Hitler was elected in 1933 and things had already started happening. The world didn't learn about the concentration camps until 1944. These camps had existed for 10 years before Mm -hmm. they were ever discovered. And so the difficulty is, is how do you gently draw this comparison in a, in a respectful way as a, almost like a public service announcement or a warning and to say, listen, this history is right upon us and is about to unfold yet again from what we've already experienced with the, with Hitler. But people have this misconception that what happened in the thirties, what happened with Hitler happened overnight. Like somebody snapped their fingers in, in the third Reich. And then all of a sudden we've got concentration camps it took years in the making to set all of the pieces in motion to allow that to happen. And we could see it very clearly. So it's unfortunate because so many people get offended when you draw these parallels between what is happening now or what just we've all experienced. And we're not through this because the reality is this. We've got Bill C-11 that is really an inch away from becoming a a law. Mm -hmm. And you know, these vaccine mandates are only suspended. And he has said this several times, I'm only suspending them. And now in Ontario, you got Dr. Moore talking about the fact that, hey, masks are still an option. And I read yesterday, University of Waterloo is now made it mandatory for all students to wear a mask in any academic setting of any kind, which means lectures, exams, libraries, indoors. Mm-hmm. So we're not through this. We are not through this. I mean, the opposition to to freedom right now still has a vote, and they very much want to be able to continue to find a way to fulfill their original agenda. This commission is really important, and I think I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that how many people are actually 
viewing the, the commission. That's a positive step for me. I just wish that some of the viewers, and I hope that some of the viewers are people that are on the other side of the argument that think that these lockdowns, these forced vaccinations are a good thing. I hope they're waking up to what was really going on. And I, I hope they wake up to the fact of, you know, it was terrifying for the unvaccinated to live in this society for quite some time during lockdowns and in vaccine mandates. And, and every day I see these comments where people are just completely oblivious in, in the old argument of what freedoms did you lose? It's like, my God, man, would you take your head right out of your ass? You know, and, and wake up when 6 million Canadians can't get on a plane. That's 15% of the population. And here's an interesting thing I learned the other day. The convoy raised more money than all political parties combined for the last, I believe, the last year in the last federal election. So in a very short amount of time, within two to three weeks, the convoy raised $20 million and had an unlimited supply of fuel and food. And why is it that all of us, you know, these other uh, 85% of the Canadians can't see what was so painfully obvious? Mm. And I think I think the answer to that clearly is with the legacy media. And I shouldn't mm. even say media, I should say the legacy propaganda. So from that perspective, it's really difficult for me to comprehend that so many Canadians supported these mandates. And, and I have a friend of mine who um, he's a doctor and he was part of the surgical team and was hearing surgeons talk about letting people die because they weren't getting vaccinated. Have mercy. Yeah, we, we That's have incredible. It is. It is like we literally have segments of our society, our most trusted segments or institutions within our society that completely turn their back on their fundamental principles. People are offended when I remind them of the parallels that that is upon us. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, um, I reached out to an individual, I, I won't name him, but, uh, a well-known scholar in the United States, and I was wanting to get his take on what he wrote about in World War II and um, and the whole uh, vaccine thing today. And he basically was of the view that no, he he wouldn't uh, do the interview because it's very different in the sense that. Uh, the governments today are trying to save people's lives, whereas you know the experience in in Nazi Germany was all about taking away people's lives, and that public health has a uh, noble calling to to help people, and 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 there's no way this can be comparable. One of the things I find interesting is that if the government makes an argument that we are making these rules for your own good and that it's in the public interest, then somehow the matter of the intention is makes it okay. And, and the problem with that argument is that you can use the idea of government is making a rule based on the public interest as it deems to be, based on you know the idea it's for the common good. But when we are dealing with something that is so abnormal, and I have a, a physician friend of mine who I double-checked with, and I said, you know, I said, has it ever been the case that even the medical profession has ever required vaccines for the medical professionals? And he said, no. He said, we have never even required the flu vaccine for uh, nurses or anyone on the front lines whatsoever. Never has been the case. And yet in this situation, we find that, yes, we're going to mandate it. But it's okay because of the intention. The intention is that it was good. And the amount of loss of freedom that we've faced as a result of a good intention is striking and 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 that seems to be one of the one of the things that I've noticed that a lot of people come back on and say well but the government has no malfeasance here there's no no maliciousness one thing i've noticed a, a really strange thing that's happened here and if you look at the Ottawa police as an example and and i know mm -hmm. i'm going to i hope that i can bring this the, my thought right back 
because it's important about government. One thing that we all just sat around with complete dis, absolute dismay was the fact that the Ottawa police is a huge police department. I think they have a, a population of a million people in this city, the city of Ottawa. So they have a huge police department and right. they have protesters that are here 99 days out of the year. So almost one third of the year. And I remember one of the politicians saying that effectively when there's a protest here in the city, at least two days a week, the entire city loses its ability to do policing because they become consumed with these protests. And I think that's a bit of a slight exaggeration. But the other thing that became so clear for us was the bureaucracy got so big and bloated the bureaucracy of the law enforcement that were dealing with the convoy actually brought their ability to do policing to its knees. The mm. infighting and the confusion and the you know lack of understanding of what their mission was, the lack of understanding of how to balance public safety and people's charter rights to protest under Section 2. This was all dismantled completely by bureaucracy. And I suspect that at the government level, a lot of the mistakes are going to be made at the government level, not because necessarily people were mean-spirited or, you know, had a lump of coal where their heart's supposed to be, but because the bureaucracy really did not lend itself well to making good decisions. Now, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want that to sound like that is an excuse for the various levels of government because you cannot, you can delegate your authority to somebody else, but mm-hmm. you cannot ever delegate the responsibility of what somebody else does under your authority. Right. So when I look at the leadership levels of various governments, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the prime minister, every premier and every mayor and council and every level of government, the leadership of every level of government is accountable and res- is responsible for what happened. I believe that these governments should be held to account. I also believe strongly that the media, the legacy propaganda media must be held to account in in the early days of this because they were absolutely, and they still are, they're absolutely instrumental in in creating the situation that happened here. But I, I look at this overall and I think that my observation is this, there is far too much power in the hands of too few politicians in this country. And there's a gross under level or volume or or way to however you want to phrase it of moral courage in, mm. amongst our political class. I think that people put themselves way out ahead of their constituents. Mm. And that's another fundamental problem that we have in this country, because I don't think that a lot of the political class that we have ever did it for the right moral reasons, why they got into politics it, it doesn't make sense with me. It doesn't reconcile mm-hmm. that we're supposed to live in this democracy where we elect people to represent us and then they turn on us and they have this, the argument of the public good mm-hmm. is where they now start to parent us. They right. start to act like kings and queens over us, like an, a, an authority figure over us when in reality we are supposed to be the authority. I mean, these democracies we have in the Western world are supposed to be based on the most powerful people are supposed to be the constituents than the government. I mean, look at the example of, you know, the three levels of government with the judicial branch, the executive, and then parliamentarians. Right. The executive right. is supposed to have the least amount. Yeah. And yet they have the most amount of power in this country and the citizens have none. I have been saying for quite some time that it's time for us to take our own King John to the Runnymede field mm-hmm. in the sense that we're at a situation, the whole concept and idea of the office of prime minister is to break up the executive, i.e. the, the monarchy and, and all the mm-hmm. rest, and, and to make it more responsible. But what has happened, certainly here in Canada, is that our own prime minister has become, in essence, a monarch. The entire party is wrapped up in the persona of the prime minister. And that then becomes a real problem with whatever he or she says, whoever's holding office, is then becomes carried out. And, and if there's ever a time 
for us to sit back and say, hey, what on earth has happened here? Because of the, the prime minister makes a decision and we go through this entire process where we bring out all of these um, police officers on the streets and mounted police and all the rest of it. And it's like, no, no, we've got to pull back and we've got to really start asking some, some serious questions. And I hope the commissioner will indeed address these important issues and to say, hey, listen, this was way overdone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's, that's very clear as time has gone on listening to the testimony at the commission when the, the idea of violence is something that we've heard the prime minister talk about and, and other ministers, and, and this was, you know, absolutely necessary to bring in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And yet, when you look at the so-called violence, it, it is more a perception of violence. Like when you listen to the, the citizens groups, when they were testifying and others, and it was like, there was no one that actually saw any violence. You know, they talk about harassment and all this kind of stuff, but we haven't really seen any evidence with respect to that. And we're like, okay, where is this perception of violence coming from? And the only thing that comes to my mind is that we've got, as you mentioned, the media that has been propagating this. No one sees anything. And like, I'm, I'm just wondering what your thought is as you're there listening to this. Is this just simply a made up thing? Like, where's the violence? That's kind of a, that's become a little bit of a running joke where, where I'm residing during this commission uh, with the legal team, because the best example I can give is when Brendan Miller, our lawyer was cross-examining the acting police chief bell Mm. and he said like did you see any violence and he's like no and then it came out in his testimony that nobody's actually seen it and in fact brendan went through during the beginning of the protest up to the invocation of the emergency act there was only five arrests the entire time for Mm. violent crime and then i think it further broke down to four There was four arrests for actual violent crime. When you're looking at it and you're saying, well, how does that stack up against the rest of the city at a normal time of year? Because Mm. we know that that crime, the crime rate in the city of Ottawa during the time of the convoy was down 90%. I remember Keith and Eva saying to us one day, they had 100 affidavits from local residents when they were going in for the horn injunction in front of Justice McLean. And they had 100 affidavits from local residents that were there supporting the convoy. Right. And people repeatedly said, hey, I never felt more safe to be in the city of Ottawa than when the convoy was here. Before the convoy, I was nervous to walk around here. You know, you've got admissions under oath with the chief of police at the time of the Emergency Act saying, well, I never actually saw anything. You've got the mayor, the mayor who said, well, I never saw any violence. And then you've got one of the deputy police chiefs saying, well, you know, looking at the numbers, we didn't really arrest anybody for violent crime. And then Bell's testimony was kind of embarrassing and kind of damning to his position where he said it wasn't actual violence. People felt like it was violent. Yeah. You know, and then the joke started with the, uh, of course, around here with the microaggressions and the phantom honking, and now it's like phantom violence. The whole thing has been absurd. And again, I looked at a media report yesterday from Global, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Jeremy McKenzie and Diagonal. I testified about Diagonal. Jeremy testified, he's in detention in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And the media did this hit piece, like Global News did such a brutal hit piece after Jeremy's testimony when it was absolutely established that Diagonal is not a real thing. They still spent two and a half minutes doing a hit piece on Jeremy McKenzie in Diagonal and painted it like it was a right-wing extremist militia. Yeah. It's like it was clearly said in, into evidence in front of the justice, in front of the, all the 25 or so lawyers in the room. Diagonal is not real. It is an internet joke. It's a meme. I testified and I said, look, the vice president of Diagonal is a cocaine addicted, time traveling goat. The only, the only thing I forgot was that his name was Philip, right? <laughs> And this is, and I said, this, there should be a commission on the intelligence failures of our government for talking about Diagonal as if so it's a real thing, because it is not a real thing. And yet they're using it as a justification mm. to, to invoke the Emergency Act. They had members of parliament on the liberal side running around in parliament saying Diagonal, 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 like as if though somehow it's the Taliban. Meanwhile, 
it's a joke. It was, it was just started as a meme on the internet to get people to go to a barbecue. And yet we still have people like Global News doing stories as of two days ago saying that Diagon was a militia that was right-wing extremist, IMVE, and, you know, basically wanted to take over the country, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's criminal the way the media in this country behaves, the, the mainstream propaganda. It is criminal the way they do this. There's a, an article, uh, I saw the cover of it all over the internet this week in the Atlantic magazine, and they're talking about amnesty. I don't know if you've seen the uh, Yes, the yes. So I, I fundamentally disagree with that approach for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But I want to be very, very careful about this because, you know, I, I had a great conversation with Keith this morning and he said, you know, you, you can't go after the media and do what the media did to us. You know, mm-hmm. the, the media for a story would have been happy to put us all on, on trains. Yeah. But we as the public cannot descend or devolve into being a, a witch hunting mob yeah. And start talking about putting the media on boxcars. That's that's not civilized. That's not a society that we we have been fighting for. Mm-hmm. But wow, like you you there's no way you're ever going to get accountability if you don't first get justice. Mm-hmm. No, and and we need we need justice. And if you've got nothing to be worried about, then you have nothing to be worried about. You know, we we need to do this process. If we don't take our media people to account, then how is this country ever going to get fixed? How is this country ever going to heal from what happened? Because from what I'm seeing on online, a lot of people don't want to forgive anybody for what was done. But I think in order to move forward and in, in get to the point where we can forgive, we need accountability. We can't yep. just we can't just pretend it never happened because mm-hmm. then we get right back to 1933 Eastern Europe again. No, and I think that's a very fair point. I was very fascinated by that article in the Atlantic. In fact, I've even drafted an op-ed. I haven't sent it anywhere yet. I've just been si- sitting on it for a little bit. But my my thought um, is that we need to have both. We need to have justice. And we need to have forgiveness, but we've got to get the justice part straightened out first before we can get to the forgiveness. Yeah. And I think I, I, I agree with Keith. It's, it's absolutely right. What well, one of the problems we have is that we, we can't be like our enemies as it were, or mm-hmm. in, in the sense of being willing to do what they were willing to do to us. But well, we, they, we, as a society though, as a society, we have an absolute right to justice, but we absolutely. certainly have no right to revenge. Yeah, exactly. And, and, exactly. and right now, you, you're seeing a lot of people feel this this move towards revenge as opposed to justice. Right. And and somehow this can't be a thing that we devolve to. Right. And it's my goal, and I'm going to be working on this pretty hard. I think after the commission is to make sure that we start looking at justice and and do everything in our power to resist the temptation for revenge because that is not a civilized society and it is not the future I want for my kids. No, exactly. Exactly. And that's a great point. Excellent point. One of the things that you brought up in your own testimony that I thought was fascinating was that here it is, your bank accounts were frozen, but not only your bank accounts, but Mm -hmm. your ex-spouse's bank account. Can you just unpack that one a little bit for me? Like, I mean, how in the world have we got to that kind of mindset? Yeah, well, it was interesting because from what I've learned is that um, there was a special order that was given basically to go and look at 42 people's bank accounts. And the banks were were given a directive to say, hey, we want you to search all your databases. But it wasn't just banks. It was insurance companies uh, like life insurance, car insurance. It was all the whole financial industry was given a notice to, to do a search in their databases looking for the 42 of us. And I think the list has now been expanded to 56 people. And then there was other people that after the invocation, there was uh, other people, if you donated to Give, Send, Go or GoFundMe, you know, they went after the bank accounts as well. But there's a select group of, I think, about 56 of us now that the RCMP under the FinTrack, I believe it's RCMP, but whoever's in charge of FinTrack. Mm-hmm. And FinTrack is a, is a mechanism that is only supposed to be used for domestic and international terrorist financing. And so we were deemed under that justification had to have been, I haven't yeah. seen the, the, the written order, but they would have viewed us as a domestic terrorist group of people that were coming here, exercising our section two charter right to peacefully assemble. 
That's disturbing when you think about the fact that not all 56 of those people were ever charged with any sort of a crime. I, I wasn't charged. I, I, I was never arrested for anything. I have no charges and I have not been convicted of anything. There was no due process there. It's the mm -hmm. fact that you started to look at multiple layers of my financial history. Yeah. So unfortunately, my, my first wife still carries my last name. And so when they looked at her last name, she got a letter from her financial institution that she has her retirement funds in. And she got warned and contacted that they may be freezing her assets. But then she explained it to them and then they backed off. You know, could you imagine if the house insurance industry would have gone along with what the government would have done? Because if you don't have insurance, you void your mortgage. And right. so look at the effect that it would have had. 56 people could have lost their mortgages without charges, without due mm. process, because you exercised your section two fundamental right. And this is the stuff that woke the public up. That's the funny part. It wasn't the beatings of Canadians. It wasn't the beatings of veterans. It was the fact that ordinary Canadians all of a sudden felt very, very vulnerable to having their financial assets stripped of them, in which it was what led to the run on TD Bank. TD Bank had to shut down all their bank machines because they, they couldn't cover the cash. Mm -hmm. And so... They shut down their bank machines. That's when my theory and others uh, share this theory is that the banking association got a hold of Trudeau and said, knock it off. You've yeah. done enough. Yeah. So it, it wasn't for the righteous reasons of protecting fundamental rights or due process. It was because the money told Justin Trudeau in all likelihood to uh, stop being a tyrant. Unfortunately, and I think it's extremely important for those of you who are watching this uh, great conversation that we're having here with Tom Marazzo and his experience in having his bank accounts frozen. Unfortunately, it takes individuals to recognize that they themselves may very well be in harm's way as a result of individuals who are losing their rights. And that's what happened here with the truckers. But we've got to recognize that when anybody is being coerced into activity that goes against their conscience or goes against their fundamental experiences and beliefs, and they simply do not want to be told what to do when it comes to their own personal health issues and all the rest. And then if we're not willing to allow our fellow citizens to have the same freedom that we have. And if uh, individuals have chosen to get the vaccine, well, that's their choice. That's mm -hmm. up to them. But uh, to, to then um, have a situation where we've had the truckers who were so literally come to the edge and so many of them have shared how they have they they lost their jobs when the vaccine mandates came in or they've lost the the ability to earn an income some of them told me how they've lost their homes and all the rest of it and then to have this lack of empathy and and that this is something that i i just simply cannot believe that canadians have been so um cold in many ways uh, two individuals who lost so much and that ultimately found themselves on the streets of Ottawa. And then to have the government react the way it did in bringing in this uh, Emergencies Act. As we look at this uh, commission right now, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on what are the key points that you have gleaned from the testimony that have been given so far? So first and foremost, and I had to learn this the hard way. And again, I did a little video about a eight, six or eight minute video on this. And I did it about a week and a half ago, explaining the purpose of this commission, because I was driving Brendan and Keith and Eva and Bashib. I was driving them crazy because <laughs> I, I was reading comments. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. Right. And then I would go to them and then they would just say to me, like, why is that relevant? I'm like, why do you, what do you mean? Why is that relevant? Of course it's relevant. They yeah. said, no, it's not relevant to why we're here for the commission. We're not being investigated right. you know, for this commission. The government of Canada, the prime minister's, his decision to invoke the emergency act, he is the one being investigated for right. this. The commission is supposed to make a determination whether or not he properly used it. Mm -hmm. And it's right there in the legislation for the emergency act under section 63. 
If you invoke the Emergency Act, you must convene a commission. And there's a bunch of rules around it. Right. But here's the thing that I didn't understand. And this is what the lawyers finally sat me down. Keith and Brandon sat me down calmly and said, okay, listen up. Okay, I'm like, okay, I'm, a, I'm about to get a good lecture here. Yeah. There's the CSIS Act, Section 2. Within Section 2 of the CSIS Act, there's four standards that must be met. Any of the four, if any of those four events should happen, so terrorism, sedition, sabotage to critical infrastructure, and in one other, if any of those four things are met, you can invoke the Emergency Act. But Brennan established right in the beginning of his open statement, he read mm -hmm. off Section 2 of the CSIS Act, and he said, you're not going to hear any evidence that supports this. And as right. we get into it, when he had Pat Morris on the stand, the chief of intelligence for the OPP, he walked him through it and he said to him, I think you know where I'm going to go with these questions. Did you find evidence of A? Did you find evidence of B, C, and D? And he's like, no, we didn't. And so that piece is fundamentally where I believe the commission lawyers went, okay, we get it now. We get it. You don't have it. You didn't have the justification. But here's the interesting thing about this. There's a difference between an elected official and an unelected city official. So, for example, the mayor who's elected and the chief right. of police who's not elected, but they're both public servants. And what you're seeing is we have 20 different lawyer groups or 20 different groups withstanding in the commission. There's us, the JCCF, the Democracy Fund, and one other civil rights law firm that are excellent. I just can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. And then the commission lawyers. So there's five groups in there that are actually talking about the Emergency Act. Everybody else is just shifting the blame. It's a hot potato. Like mm -hmm. we have the lawyer for Peter Slowly in there, Tom Curry, great lawyer, really nice man, but he's there to defend one and only Peter Slowly, the former chief of police for Ottawa, so that he's not culpable for what happened. Then you've got, there's a citizens coalition that are suing all of us for $326 million because of the horns. Right. I don't own a horn, by the way, or a truck, and neither do half the people on the list that the citizens coalition is suing. Right. But you, you've got these other 15 groups that are jogging to try to shift responsibility for what happened on the side of the government and law enforcement away from them. Because right. that is what actual risk management is. Risk management is we get rid of risk. What it is, is we transfer risk to somebody else. Right. And that's what's going on. The other 15 bodies in there are all just transferring risk to a different party in the commission. So there's only five of us that are actually talking about why we were there. I mean, even Brandon joked the other day, he's like, I don't know what to do after Pat Morris because he's already proven it. And, and mm. every time they come up more and more, Brandon just walks up, he gets 10 minutes, he uses five. Mm. And it's like, hey, did you see this? No, thank you, sits down. So mm. as far as we're concerned, the commission already knows we're going to get this rule to be that I believe, I personally believe. That the judge is going to say, and the commission lawyers are going to say, yeah, prime minister was completely unjustified in what they did. It's not all that it's going to be, but this is also a court of public opinion. That's right. I think this will have a huge impact on the next election. If the, the commission comes back and says, you were unjustified in what you did to your own citizens, I just don't understand how he can survive much longer than the next confidence vote. I, I just don't understand how he survives. Yeah. He's been through how many ethics violations, but he's he's gotten through them. But nothing was like brutally attacking your own people. Yeah, yeah. And on the Twitter feeds, at least, the amount of support that he still receives from the public is, <laughs> yeah. to me, mind-boggling. Yes. Um, but your sense is it's actually getting less as time is going on. My sense is that the liberal supporters, the, the hardcore ones, I mean, let's just, I'll spitball and say like 20% really, or 10% really, really hardcore supporters of the government. You're never going to change your mind. Right. And, you know, equally on the other side of the spectrum, you've got 10% of the public out there that are just, right. they're ready to go. Yep. So it's that 80% in the middle, but it ultimately, I think the, the tug of war comes down to the middle 40% of the people in our population. And I think that's what we're both pulling towards. We want to pull them to our side to say, look, you come over to at least to the 50 or 60% side and acknowledge that this was wrong from day one. The other argument is, no, they want to go over to the right side. And say, yeah, this was totally justified. Every day I get called an insurrectionist, a seditionist, a traitor. I get all, all sorts of filth on the thing. Right. But the reality is, is that the law was always on our side. 
Our, mm. The law was on our side from day one. And I think if you remember that when they asked me why I went and I said something to the effect of when this all started, we thought the lawyers were going to actually do their thing and, and stop this right in its tracks. And, mm-hmm. and anyone did. And then when the vaccines came out, we thought the doctors would actually step up and do something. And they didn't, except for a small few. And then it took the truckers to get the attention of the government. And what, what was the result? The government came down with a bazooka. Mm-hmm. You know, and and never. Oh, and here's the other thing I want to make very clear. This is this is one of the points I drive the lawyers crazy with because I wanted them to ask every single time there was a witness up there. I wanted them to ask and say, "Hey, did you ever try to set up a meeting and talk to any of the leaders of the convoy?" Because the answer would have been no every single time. Mm-hmm. If you listen to the testimony, nobody had any will at all to ever have a discussion with us except for the OPP. And uh, Inspector Bodan, Maurice Bodan, he's the police liaison, the head of the police liaison teams for the OPP. He actually recommended in a memo, he was working with a deputy minister for, I think, Mendocino. I could be wrong about the details. He wrote a memo saying, basically recommending that you actually have a meeting with whoever the the convoy puts forward as a a leadership team. Mm. Have a meeting with them. And that meeting went all the way to cabinet and it was briefed to Trudeau's cabinet. And the next day they said, no, we're, we're, we're not going to do that because the next day we want to invoke the emergency act. So mm-hmm. only one group that I've heard any testimony from that said, this is a good idea to actually go and talk to the people. And the highest ranking person we ever spoke to on a day-to-day basis was a sergeant from a liaison team. And, right. and I had a one meeting, one meeting I attended where there was an inspector. And it was after we were trying to work on the deal to move out of the intersection in, in more vehicles up onto Wellington. So there was never a will. And that was so obvious. And we heard this testimony over and over and over. They immediately were pushing for a policing solution using violence or powers of, of arrest. And, and just it was all about kinetic energy to them. It had nothing to do with actual dialogue. And that's disturbing. Yeah, it is very disturbing. Do you get a sense from the testimony as to the reasoning behind that at all? Or is, is that yeah. just still in mystery? Political pressure. I think the at the on the, the political class from the prime minister down, because we know that the prime minister's office was in touch directly with the mayor. We know Doug Ford was involved too, but in typical Doug Ford fashion, he holds no accountability for anything that he does. We just saw all this political pressure and we recognized the political pressure that the chief of police was under very, very early from we watched a recording of the police services meeting with Diane Dean. And we all recognized immediately that that police chief, Peter Slowly, was in in a lot of trouble because of the amount of pressure we identified that he was under. So we immediately started taking steps to try to relieve the pressure on the city and on the chief, thinking that if the pressure came off the chief, he would push back against the local politicians and say, hey, you remember when I said this wasn't a policing solution? Well, I still maintain that. But the pressure was so great that he was getting it from so many different directions. In the end, he actually resigned the day after the invocation of the Emergency Act. Right. And it's unfortunate because I think he had the the character, the strength of a righteous police chief to do what needed to be done, but he had no support and the pressure I think was just too great. It's just striking to me that this government is making this it's 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 almost kind of like its touchstone in 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 that it is what they will be known for to make a rule it makes no sense and now that we get more and more information that it it wasn't even based on science with respect to the mandates and all the rest of it It it's just again political decisions and even the treatment of the truckers the bringing in the invocation of the emergencies act just simply it's our way or no way we are going to enforce it and it's like Why on earth are they, as a government, so willing to have this wrapped around themselves? Is it just a a failure to be self-aware? Is it a failure to recognize, you know, that they're not willing to make an, um, an apology? Or it just baffles me how they have come to this situation where we have been put through so much as a country. And there's no responsibility. There's no accountability. There's no, you know. Yeah. And and to me, what I just heard you describe 
is a classic bully. And and I think what what happened was it is clear to me that every level of government got a taste of that power. And I don't think mm-hmm. they they wanted to go back to the old ways, to be perfectly blunt about it. I think that they got this nice taste of power and it got away from them. They got okay. used to being the bully. The mm-hmm. You do what I say at every level of government. You do what I say. Otherwise, I'm going to give you a fine or I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to shut down your business. I am going to be sending my my inspectors here, my, my bylaw inspectors, my medical inspectors. I'm going to be sending them here in droves to shut down your business because you, the restaurant owner or the business owner, are not doing what I tell you to do. Mm. Well, guess what? Nobody elected you to act like you're somebody's parent. Mm -hmm. They only elected you to represent people. Nobody represents a government official in order for them to then turn around and start doling out punishment like they do. And they really, really seem to get quite high off of the the power that they were receiving in, in their ability and their relentless desire to bully their own constituents at every level. And you saw it. You saw it all across the country. And I mean, you see it with, with city police officers. You saw it with the uh, public health inspectors. You saw it with bylaw inspectors. The bullying, the unprofessional behavior that happened all across this country was just disgusting. Mm-hmm. And it still is to think about it. You know, it really is. And I think people got a little bit too comfortable with that is just the way it is now. Mm. I'm the mayor. I'm the elected one. I get to do horrible things to my own constituents because who's going to stop me? I control the police, right? Yeah. You control the force. Yeah. It, it's it's the uh, Lord Acton's uh, famous mm. quip, you know, that uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. And it seems that that has been the modus operandi that mm-hmm. we have been experiencing. I think the takeaway from this, and, and I ask you for a takeaway, but what, one of the, the takeaways for me is the extreme necessity of citizens to stand up and say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. And that we simply cannot allow our governments to have so much power that, let's face it, we're going to be generations to pay back all of the billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that have been spent just in the last few years alone that they've been able to spend because they had this absolute power and nobody questioned them. I mean, we basically were living at a time where we didn't even have an official, I mean, we had an opposition but they weren't uh, opposing. I mean, they were just simply going along. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is as, as a country, we cannot afford to go through another experience like this. I, I agree. And I've, I've often been very harsh with the Conservative Party. Even right now, as of last night, I was tweeting against Polyev saying, you know, you're not the finance critic anymore. You now have the entire portfolio. You got to lead the party. Get out of the way of your finance critic that you've now given that portfolio to. You've got a combined problem. You have a systemic problem in government. And as the official opposition, you know, Polyev has an official opposition residence he's supposed to move into. You know, that's mm-hmm. his that's his role. The leader of the party that opposes everything that the government does. But all throughout COVID, what did we see? We saw the weakest opposition leader in in modern history in, within Canada, which was Aaron O'Toole. Mm-hmm. And he rightfully so was called a liberal light. And I'm disappointed because, you know what, he's a Royal Military College graduate. He was an officer in the Canadian Air Force. He became a lawyer and he couldn't lead and mm-hmm. he, he couldn't see the big picture. And it's really, really disappointing to see that that was the individual that was in charge of the opposition party during the biggest crisis Canada has ever faced since World War One and Two. Mm-hmm. That is what we had. That was what was standing in our way of a tyrannical prime minister and the rest of the public. Mm-hmm. That's what we had defending us. Somebody who just had no, no fortitude. We're at a point now where we've got the new leader of the opposition party. And the pandemic stuff is still not over. Mm-hmm. And I would like to start seeing Pierre Polyev start hammering Justin Trudeau on many of the things that have happened during the pandemic. Where's the accountability? It seems to me that there's the responsibility expands beyond just even the politicians, but the average citizen. We've got to, we have been so deferential towards our politicians for years. And it's kind of almost part of a Canadian pride that we are to be peace, order, good government, you know, let the 
politicians do whatever. And we haven't had that political history where we've been really holding people accountable, the government accountable. Mm -hmm. And and I think if if there's anything is that we have got to say, hey, no, you know what? We have got to be willing to stand up and to speak and to be involved and just say, we cannot have this kind of activity going forward. Tom, I just want to thank you so very much for, for spending some time with us to just, is there anything else that comes to mind that you would like to share that says, hey, you know what, about the commission, about this experience that you have had? and continue will have over the next couple of weeks. It is my absolute belief. And I know um, a lot of people are going to view this as being very naive mm. uh, because the morale in this country is so low. There's no faith anymore in the justice system, definitely not in policing, because the police have earned a really bad reputation over the last two and a half, almost three years. But it is my absolute sincere belief that this commission, when it rules in the favor of the people that were affected by it and by Canadians. I mean, this the, the results of this commission impact every Canadian, whether you're for the mandates or not for the mandates. Right. This is because in the future, when, when people that think that, oh, it's okay to put unvaccinated in train cars and send them off to their death, that type of an extreme thinking person, the yep. day will come when they have a burning issue that they cannot live with, that they cannot right. tolerate. That's and right. so they're not going to be able to look back and say, well, what about the commission you had before? You know, it's like, no, you mm -hmm. stood in the way of, of other people in what they believe that was going to be important to affect all of us. Right. You're literally trying to stand in the way of people that are trying to save this country, whether you see it or not. But yeah. in the future, I hope that other people that don't, don't support us now will never come to a time in their lives where they're going to need what we're doing today to mm. defend the future of them and their children and their friends and family. And that's the scary part is that I would hope that more Canadians would be reflective of why we were here and why so many Canadians support this. Just yeah. because you don't doesn't mean the other 6 million are wrong. So look at the issues. Why are we here? The, the public that doesn't support this has to look why we're here. And it is yeah. my honest belief that this commission is going to rule that this emergency act was not required, was not necessary, and was not legal. And I do think that after Christmas, it's going to bring down the, the government. I think it's at least going to force a, a confidence vote or at least some sort of an election will be called in the new year. That's my belief. And I think it's going to be as a direct result of the report that Justice Rouleau and his commission team of lawyers are going to produce. Well, that's a very positive note. I, I think it's absolutely necessary for us uh, to have had this commission. And like you say, it's extremely important to, to have somebody who's who's going to be willing to look at it, weigh the evidence, and come down with a, a decision that, that everyone's going to respect. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the age-old adage within the practice of law that justice must be done, but it must also be seen to be done. Yes. And it's that seeing to be done that's extremely important for us and for our future uh, mm -hmm. as a country. Yes. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much. And um, I'll be uh, watching this uh, continually to make sure that we're up on top of what's happening. And I very much appreciate you willing to come on our Freedom Future program again. Thanks for having me back, Barry. Well, and thank you, our viewers, for taking the time to spend with us as we talked about these important issues. And as we make it very clear, you may not agree with the opinions of my guests or with my own opinions, but that's okay, because here on this program, we're all about open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca